Greetings. You found me, Kevin Saunders, your Bible teacher. This lecture I'm recording on Friday morning was intended for the Wednesday morning class that meets at the Franciscan Renewal Center. I had some challenges with the site that I record on, but I've sorted all of those out. And so this recording would be the first lecture of our spring quarter. And uh, we'll continue to do this at least throughout the month of April, staying current as best we can during these trying times. Now, beginning next week, I should be up and operational on my regular schedule so that your class, the Wednesday lecture of Franciscan Renewal Center will be posted uh, before Wednesday morning, so you would have access to it at the uh, regular time you normally listen. We'll sort out registration and registration payment details at a later date. Right now, I just want to continue to get the word out and give people an opportunity to continue to study through, in this case, First Kings uh, with me this morning. Now, as we do each time we come together, we pause and offer a word of prayer. Together, we give thanks to our gracious God for the gift of this technology, which allows us to gather and listen to read and study your word. Please open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say, that in better understanding you, we may come to love you more deeply. God, our Father, you sent your Son into the world to be its true light. Pour out the Holy Spirit, he promised us, to sow truth in our hearts and awaken in us obedience to the faith. May we all be born again to new life and enter the fellowship of your one holy people. And grant this through the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. In lieu of announcements, maybe I'll take just a moment to bring you up to speed about the family. Diane and I are sheltering in place so far. So good. Lots of work to do around the old homestead. Our children are well. Four of the five, remember, are in more strict quarantine quarters, three of them living in the general Los Angeles area, the other living in San Diego. The two moms a little stir-crazy now that they're homeschooling their children until at least the summer months as all the schools have been canceled, although all my children continue to work in various way, shape, and form from their homes. Some have lost a bit of their salary, but none have lost their jobs to date, which is good news uh, if you're a parent of an adult child. And uh, they seem to be in good spirits. Thank goodness for that and for the gift of Zoom, which allows us to have family gatherings online. They're a bit uh, crazy at times, but we get through them and we're always blessed to see everyone doing as well as they are. So having said that, I'm going to direct your attention back to 1 Kings. And in a moment, we're going to return to 1 Kings chapter 20 and the 34th verse. But let's remind ourselves that we are now deep in the Elijah cycle of 1 and 2 Kings. Elijah, this prophet of God, powerful in word and deed, has proven himself victorious, remember, over the 450 prophets of Baal who cried out to their God to accept their sacrificial offering to no avail. And 
additionally has ingratiated himself to King Ahab. He married to that vile and despicable and evil woman Jezebel because Ahab witnessed God's lightning bolt from above strike the drenched offering of Elijah, consuming it whole and entire. And you may remember that uh, as Ahab began his journey from Mount Carmel back to his throne room headquarters in chapter 18 in the last verse, verse 46, the hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he girded up his clothing and ran before Ahab as far as the approaches of that royal city known as Jezreel. The fact that he would run in front of Ahab suggests that he is in the good grace of the king and the king is going to receive his message from now on. That until, of course, the day's events are explained in great detail to his wife Jezebel. And remember, in the opening of chapter 19, Ahab returned home and told his wife Jezebel all that Elijah had done. And I think with glowing praise would be my understanding. Also, he mentioned that he had murdered all the prophets by the sword, ordered them killed. Remember, not a great act on behalf of Elijah, because each one of those 450 prophets of Baal would have become a living witness to the event uh, that had transpired. But be that as it may, this information incensed Jezebel. She must have been such a threatening character that when she simply sent a message to Elijah and said, may the gods, this is 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 2, do thus to me and more, if by this time tomorrow I have not done with your life what was done to each of them. Well, Elijah was afraid for his life, terrified. He fled for his life, going as far south as Beersheba of Judah. He left his servant there and went a day's journey into the wilderness until he came to a solitary broom tree. He sat beneath it, and there he prayed to die. Well, the angel of the Lord intervened. He continued his journey to Mount Sinai, Mount Orab, and most believe found himself in the very cave in which God had placed Moses hundreds of years earlier in order to pass by him in a way revealing himself to him. And the same happens with Elijah. He hears the Lord, remember, in that still, small voice. And the Lord directs him, as you recall, to do a number of things. He is, first of all, to return to Ahab. And on the way, he is going to anoint a king of Aram, meaning modern-day Syria, the nation north of Israel, named Hatzael. He shall be anointed by the prophet as king. And also, he is to anoint a fellow named Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king of Israel. And then finally, Elisha. He is to locate this son of Shaphat and anoint him as a prophet who will succeed him. This threefold commission then Elijah takes to heart and makes his way back toward Jezreel. And as he does, he comes across all three of these men and he 
dutifully performs what God asked him to do. And one is anointed king in Aram, the other is anointed the replacement king effectively in Israel, because the king at that point is still Ahab with his queen Jezebel. And he also now has in his company Elisha and will follow the life story of Elijah to its conclusion. He will be taken up in a fiery chariot into the heavens, and he then will be given the mantle, that is, Elisha, of his predecessor, Elijah. But that's for a later lecture. Now, we return then to 1 Kings chapter 20. And in 1 Kings chapter 20 and verse 34, we meet an unnamed prophet among the brotherhood of prophets. If there were 450 prophets of Baal, well, there were also hundreds of prophets of God who were in the company of the prophets that were being trained by the likes of Elijah. And we meet one of them in our opening verses for this particular lecture. In verse 35, of 1 Kings chapter 20, acting on the word of the Lord, one of the guild prophets said to one of his guild prophet companions, strike me, but he refused to do so. And he said to him, since you did not obey the voice of the Lord, a lion will attack you when you leave me. And when he left, in fact, a lion came upon him and attacked him. Well, this got the attention of others in the prophetic guild, because that same prophet, still unnamed, met another man and said, strike me. And the man obeyed. He struck him a blow and wounded him so that he drew blood, so that then this prophet would appear to have been engaged in some sort of mortal combat. Now that particular prophet, so wounded in verse 38, went on and waited for the king on the road, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king was passing, he called out to the king and said, Your servant went into the thick of the battle, and suddenly someone turned and brought a man and said, Guard this man. If he is missing, you shall have to pay for his life with your life or pay out a talent of silver. That man, fictional, of course, to the king's ears, would have been a valuable captive taken in the course of the engagement. And the purpose of guarding him was so that he could be ransomed back to his family. That's why the value of that man was marked as that of a talent of silver. A talent is a weighted measure of silver. Most estimates are of 75 pounds. So imagine 75 pounds of nickels, uh, that idea, a, a large sum of money. And so this person placed in custody was to be protected because he was a valuable asset. Again, this is all a fiction, but Ahab doesn't know that. Now, the prophet goes on to say in <clears throat> verse 40, while your servant was thus occupied here and there, that man disappeared. Well, the king, adjudicating of Israel, said to him, well, that is your sentence then. You have decided it yourself. And so, her hearing this, he quickly removed the bandage from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets, one of the gilded brotherhood prophets. 
And he said to him, This is what the Lord says, Because you have set free the man I put under the ban, your life shall pay for his, your people for his people. Disturbed and angry, the king of Israel set off for home and entered Samaria. So Ahab had done exactly what the guild prophet had pretended he had done, and God is now going to punish Ahab for that action. Now, he's beside himself, and he arrives home at Jezreel. Uh, in Jezreel, there was a fellow in chapter 21 named Nabaoth. Nabaoth had a vineyard in Jezreel next to the palace of Ahab, who was the king of Samaria. Sometime later, Ahab said to Nabaoth, give me your vineyard to be my vegetable garden. Since it is close by next to my house, I will give you a better vineyard somewhere else in exchange, or if you prefer, I will give you its value in money. Nabaoth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you my ancestral heritage. You know that I'll never get that back. I don't intend ever to sell it. The fact that I have a vineyard means that I've managed my land well. The last thing that you build as part of your homestead effectively is that vineyard because it has to be tended on a hillside with the right temperature gradients. It has to be walled. It has to have a tower in it and it produces fruit ripe at the same time. So it's very labor intensive. You wouldn't have gone to all of that work with ever having an intention to sell it. So he says, no, you understand our culture and our traditions. I'm not going to give it to you, and I'm not going to sell it to you. I'm not going to trade it for another vineyard somewhere else. Well, hearing this, Ahab went home disturbed and angry at the answer Nabaoth had given him. I will not, he said, give you my ancestral inheritance. So lying down on his bed, he turned away and would not eat. His wife Jezebel came to him and said, Why so sullen? How is it that you will not eat? And he answered her, Well, it's because I spoke and I thought forcefully enough to Nabaoth and said to him, Sell me your vineyard, or I even offered, if you prefer, I will give you a vineyard in exchange. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard, meaning I'm not going to exchange it, nor am I going to sell it to you. Well, Jezebel, his wife, said to him, What kind of a king of Israel are you? Get up, man, eat and be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Nabaoth. And so, with evil intent, she wrote letters in Ahab's name, and having sealed them with his seal, sent them to the elders and to the nobles who lived in the same city with Nabaoth. This is what she wrote in the letters. Proclaim a fast and set Nabaoth at the head of the people. Now, if you're seated at the head of the people, you're at a table. How does that coincide with a fast? Well, you proclaim a fast for a particular amount of time. And when the fast is over, you break the fast. Breakfast? So that you celebrate with a sumptuous meal in a communal setting. And that's what she is going to imagine will happen. So proclaim a fast, let's imagine, for the next two days. And then when it's over, set Nabaoth at the head of the people, position of honor. 
next set two scoundrels opposite him to falsely accuse him, saying, In unison, you have cursed God and the king. Take him out then and stone him to death. Well, his fellow citizens, terrified of Ahab and his evil wife Jezebel, the elders and the nobles who dwelt in his city, did as Jezebel had ordered in the letters she sent them. They proclaimed a fast and set Nabaoth at the head of the people. Two scoundrels came in and sat opposite Nabaoth, and the scoundrels accused him in the presence of the people, saying publicly and in agreement without necessary cross-examination, Nabaoth has cursed God and has cursed the king. Well, with that, they led him out of the city and stoned him to death. And then they sent word to Jezebel. Nabaoth has been stoned to death. Not to Ahab, but to Jezebel, because they knew that she was behind this ruse that led to the murder of Nabaoth, an innocent man. Now, when Jezebel learned that Nabaoth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Go now, take possession of the vineyard of Nabaoth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to sell you. Because Nabaoth is not alive. He's dead. And when Ahab heard that Nabaoth was dead, he started on his way down to the vineyard of Nabaoth to take possession of it. I remember reading, oh, as recently as a year ago, that biblically tuned archaeologists believe that they have not only located the royal compound of Ahab in Jezreel, a valley, it hadn't gone anywhere, but also, in addition, what was most likely the location of that vineyard, knowing that vineyards have to be placed on hillsides with access to sun and water, the soils perfectly suited for the cultivation of the grape. And so, given that information gleaned from 1 Kings chapter 21, they believe that they've actually located that physical geographic site, attesting once again to the veracity, to the historicity of the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. Well, having accomplished this ruse and murdered Nabaoth in the process, the word of the Lord in verse 17 came to Elijah, the Tishbaite, and he was told to go down to meet Ahab, the king of Israel, who was, as Elijah was informed, in Samaria. Jezreel is in Samaria. He will be in the vineyard of Nabaoth, where he has gone to take possession illegally as a result of a ruse which led to murder. When you meet him there, tell him, this is what the Lord says. After murdering, do you also take possession and tell him, in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Nabaoth because he was stoned off the edge of a precipice and fell to his death. The dogs shall lick up your blood also. Now Elijah goes to meet the king. And when he does, Ahab greets him. And when he sees him in verse 20, he says, Have you found me out, my enemy? He said, I have found you because you have given yourself up to doing evil in the Lord's sight. And so speaking from the Lord's voice, he says, I am bringing evil upon you. I will consume you and cut off every male belonging to you 
whether bond or free, in Israel. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, it doesn't exist anymore, and like that of the house of Baasha'ah, which doesn't exist anymore, because you have provoked me by leading Israel into sin. Against Jezebel too, the Lord declared through the prophet Elijah, the dog shall devour Jezebel in the confines of Jezreel. So you'll die outside the city and dogs will lick up your blood because no one will be there to collect your mortal remains to bury them and your wife will die in the city after you. Anyone hears the prophetic utterance of Ahab's line, who dies in the city, dogs will devour. Anyone who dies in the field, the birds of the sky will devour. That is, no one in your familial association is going to be accorded proper burial. There'll be not only death, but also shame in association. Indeed, he goes on to say in verse 25, no one gave himself up to the doing of evil in the sight of the Lord as Ahab did, urged on by his wife Jezebel. He became completely abominable by going after idols, just as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord drove out of the Israelites' way. Obviously, verses 25 and 26 are a later editorial edition, a commentary on the narrative to this point. We don't know who, what scribe wrote these words, but they ring true to the narrative. Ahab was an evil man urged on by an evil wife, Jezebel. Now, when Ahab completed hearing the words of the prophet Elijah, he responded appropriately. He tore his garments, a symbol of mourning, and put on sackcloth over his bare flesh. He fasted and he slept in the sackcloth and went about subdued. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah, God speaking to the prophet, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Since he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil upon him in this time. I will wait and will bring the evil upon his house in the time of his successor, in the time of his son. Now, three years pass without war between Aram and Israel. Remember, Aram is an enemy to the north of Israel, modern-day Syria, and uh, Elijah has anointed a king there, but uh, the status quo has held and there has been no conflict between the two nation states. In the third year, however, King Jehoshaphat of Judah from the south came down to the king of Israel. The king of Israel said to his servants, do you not know that Ramoth Gilead is ours and we are doing nothing to take it from the king of Aram? Ramoth Gilead, I don't have a map with me, but in your own mind's eye, is a border town that uh, uh, is located just to the most extreme north and east part of the land ruled by Ahab during this time in history and it had been taken in due course of time, over by the king of Aram. It had always previously belonged to Israel. And so 
because they felt they had occasion and the confidence to do so, the thought process was, let's go and take it back. Well, Jehoshaphat is in his company because the two kings may work at this time and certainly will uh, to succeed in this military endeavor. And so he asked Jehoshaphat in verse 4, will you come with me to fight against Ramoth Gilead? Well, Jehoshaphat answered the king of Israel, you and I, in this regard, because that village, if you will, always used to belong to Israel, are as one. And your people and my people, your horses and my horses as well. A long-winded way of saying, I'm in. So we keep that in mind. Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, before we go, though, we need to seek the word of the Lord at once. The king of Israel then assembled the prophets. He knows how to do this. About 400 of them. And with Jehoshaphat witnessing the spectacle, asked them, Shall I go to fight against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? Rather than a single voice speaking out, they all in concert responded, No, no, no. Absolutely, go, attack. The Lord will give it into the power of the king. These are yes men. Jehoshaphat looks at this in amazement and says, Is there no other prophet of the Lord here we might consult? And he would mean by that properly in the way that prophets should be consulted. And the king of Israel answered him quite honestly, There is one other man through whom we might consult the Lord, but I hate him because he prophesies not good, but evil about me. His name is Micaiah. He's the son of a man named Imlaah. And Jehoshaphat said, you know, a king should never say those words aloud. You should never publicly announce that the one prophet who goes against the 400 others in the company of the prophets is someone you hate because he may have the message that God needs you to hear. So the king of Israel called an official and said to him, Go get Micaiah, the son of Imlaah, at once. Well, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were seated together, each on his throne, clothed in their robes of state, in the square at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them, one of them, Zedekiah, made himself two horns of iron and said, The Lord says, With these you shall gore Aram until you have destroyed them. The other prophets prophesied in a similar vein, saying, Attack Ramoth Gilead and conquer. The Lord will give it into the power of the king. The horns created, I imagine in my mind's eye, along the lines of the Minnesota Vikings, uh, the, the sort of helmets that some of the fans wear in the stands, that sort of thing, acting out uh, the goring of the enemy. Meanwhile, in verse 13, the messenger who had gone to call Micaiah said to that prophet in chains, look now, all the prophets are unanimously predicting good for the king. So let your word be good and be the same as any of theirs, speak a good word, man. Now, Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, I shall speak whatever 
the Lord tells me, meaning I can only say what God puts in my heart. And when he came to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we, Jehoshaphat and I, go to fight at Ramoth-Gilead, or shall we refrain? Well, in a mocking tone, I'm sure, because he's assessed the situation all around him, he said, with his tongue firmly planted in his cheek, oh, no, sure, yes, please, attack and conquer. The Lord will give it into the power of the king. But the king saw through this ruse and said, how many times must I adjure you to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And so, being counseled to deliver the truth, he said, I see then all of Israel scattered on the mountains in defeat, like sheep without a shepherd. And I see the Lord saying, these have no master. Let each of them go back home in peace, that is, run away, retreat. The king of Israel then said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you? He does not prophesy good about me, but only evil. Micaiah wasn't done. He continued, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord seated on his throne, and the whole host of heaven standing to his right and to his left. And the Lord asked in this vision among those standing in close proximity, Who will go to deceive Ahab? so that he will go up and fall on Ramoth-Gilead, which would be a huge mistake. And another said this and another that, until a particular spirit came forth and stood before the Lord, saying, I will deceive him. And the Lord asked how. Now again, this is in his vision. And in the vision, he answered, this evil spirit, I will go forth and become a lying spirit in the mouths of all his prophets. Four hundred in number that are assembled there and are scandalized by what they're hearing. The Lord replied, You shall succeed in deceiving him. Go forth and do this. So now the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord himself has decreed evil against you. Well, hearing this, remember the horned prophet Zedekiah? He came up and struck Micaiah on the cheek, saying, Has the Spirit of the Lord then left me to speak with you or to speak through you? You shall find out, Micaiah answered, on the day you go into an inner room to hide, when the enemy approaches and you're quaking with terror. The king of Israel then said, seize Micaiah and take him back to Amaon, the prefect of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, this is the king's order. Put this man in prison and feed him scanty portions of bread and water until I come back in safety. But Micaiah said, there will be no return for you. If you return in safety, then the Lord has not spoken through me. And he cried out as he was being taken away, listen, People, all of you, I have spoken the word of the Lord, and it will come to pass. Now, emboldened, I suppose, somehow by the testimony of the 400 false prophets, and having been convinced, I have to imagine, by the scene in front of him, Jehoshaphat, the king of Israel, and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, 
went up to Ramoth Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I have a plan, you see. I'm going to disguise myself as a soldier and go into battle. But you put on your own, and we would read between the lines, royal robes. So you'll look like a king in the distance, but you won't be leading the forces. You'll be in the rear. So the king of Israel disguised himself and entered the battle. Again, meaning that that would give him advantage because the forces arrayed against Israel and Judah are looking to take off the head of the snake. They want to kill the king who's at the back of the vanguard. And so they'll open their ranks to allow Ahab to charge through. So the king of Israel disguised himself, verse 30, and entered the battle. In the meantime, the king of Aram had given his 32 chariot commanders an order. Do not fight with anyone, great or small, except the king of Israel, remember, who's at the back of the forces arrayed against those defending Ramoth Gilead. So when the chariot commanders saw from a distance a royal figure, they saw Jehoshaphat, they cried out, there he is. They don't distinguish yet that he's not the king of Israel, but looks like a royal figure. There's the king of Israel. And they wheeled to fight him. But as they eventually closed ranks, Jehoshaphat cried out, and the command. And so, in verse 33, Jehoshaphat, realizing that the Aramean Commanders are on his tail, cries out, and the chariots of those from Aram, seeing that he was not the king of Israel, turned away from him. But as they did, someone drew his bow at random, and firing that arrow, hit the king of Israel between the joints of his breastplate. He ordered his charioteer, reign about and take me out of the ranks, for I am wounded. As he did, the battle grew fierce during the day, and the king, who was propped up in his chariot, faced the Arameans and died in the evening. The blood of his wounds during the course of that afternoon flowed to the bottom of the chariot, which was made of stiff leather. At sunset, a cry went out through the army, every man to a city, every man to his land. So, over the course of the afternoon into the evening hours, the king of Israel bled out. Ahab bled out, and the blood soaked the base of that chariot. And so the king died, and they came back to Samaria, and they buried him there. And when they washed out the chariot at the pool of Samaria, they were amazed, because they looked, and dogs licked up his blood, and it was also the place where prostitutes bathed just as the Lord had prophesied. So the rest of the acts of Ahab, with all that he did, including the ivory house he built and all the cities he built, are recorded in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. He rested with his ancestors and his son Ahaziah succeeded him as king. An ivory house, not wholly constructed of ivory, but the imported tusks of elephants brought from Africa to decorate that house, we would understand. Meanwhile, in verse 41, Jehoshaphat, remember the king of Judah, the son of Asa, 
had become king of Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, the king of Israel. We're remembering where Jehoshaphat began his rule. He was 35 years old when he became king and reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. During that particular reign, the event that we've just studied took place. He walked in verse 43 in the way of Asa, his father, unceasingly, doing what was right in the Lord's sight. Nevertheless, the high places did not disappear, and the people still sacrificed on the high places and burned incense there. Again, to God, burning incense. To God offering sacrifice, but they're not bringing the sacrifice whole and entire to the temple as would be appropriate to do so. Jehoshaphat had also made peace with the king of Israel. Again, this is what allows for the events of chapter 22 to take place during a time of peace between the south and the north. They come together to fight against a common enemy. They fail spectacularly because they don't listen to the singular voice of God spoken through the prophet Micaiah in the assemblage of those two kings in Jezreel. So in verse 46, the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat, with his valor, what he did, and how he fought, they're all recorded in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah. He removed from the land the rest of the pagan priests who had remained in the temple, or I'm sorry, in the reign of Asa, his father. And at this time, there was no king in Edom, just an appointed regent. So Jehoshaphat made Tarshish ships go to Ophir, which is in Africa, for gold. But in fact, the ships did not go because they were wrecked at a place called Esion Geber. That was the time when Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, had said to Jehoshaphat, let my servants accompany yours in the ships. But Jehoshaphat would not agree. He had been tricked into this military engagement by the father of Ahaziah, Ahab, and so they had severed the confidence they had brokered over the years, Judah and Israel. Eventually, Jehoshaphat rested with his ancestors and was buried with them in the city of David, his father, and his son Jehoram succeeded him as king. So now, bringing us back to the historical narrative, Ahaziah, the son of Ahab now, became king over Israel in Samaria. This happened in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. He reigned for the following two years over Israel. Remember, he becomes king because his father is killed by that errant arrow that was fired and pierced the joints of his armor. He bled out in his chariot. Ahaziah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He's a northern king walking in the way of his father, his mother, and Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshipped him, thus provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, just as his father had done. Now, that brings us to a conclusion of First Kings, and we'll move now seamlessly into Second Kings, remembering that in some very old translations of the Bible in the Catholic faith community, in a table of contents, you wouldn't even have First and Second Samuel listed 
as books in the Hebrew Bible. Rather, they would be called 1st and 2nd Kings, and our 1st and 2nd Kings would be called 3rd and 4th Kings. It's one long, continuous historical narrative about the role that prophets play in the time of the united and disunited monarchy. And so we keep that in mind. The same cast of characters cascades past the end of 1 Kings chapter 1 into the first chapter of 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 1. After Ahab's death, we've chronicled that on the field of battle at the hands of the king of Aram, trying to take back Jabash Gilead, Moab, a nation to the east, rebelled against Israel. Why? Well, they weren't going to pay tribute anymore if there was no perception that Israel would be able to do anything about it. So the political kind of balance that had existed before was no longer in play, and Moab is going to rebel against Israel and test her resolve to see if she will send forces across the Jordan River to exact a political or a military penalty. Now, as all of this is happening, Ahaziah fell through the lattice of his roof terrace from the roof of the palace and uh, was injured. So he sent out messengers with specific instructions. Rather than inquire of a prophet, they were to go inquire of the god of Ekron, a god called Baal-Zebub, whether or not I shall recover from this injury. Now, while this messenger was sent to this pagan priest and a pagan temple where the god Baal-Zebub, which is, by the way, one of the names that religious leaders in the Gospels uh, accord to Jesus. He casts out demons by the prince of demons, Beelzebub. It's the same God of the Philistines, a God uh, present in the earth in the issue of flies that are everywhere and bring disease. And so while the messenger of the Lord is on the way, he came across Elijah. In verse 3, meanwhile, the messenger of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, you need to go and meet a specific messenger of Samaria's king, Ahaziah, and tell them, him, but he's traveling with others, It is it because there is no God of Israel that you are going to inquire of Baal-zebub, the God of Ekron? For this, says the Lord, Ah, you shall not leave the bed upon which you lie. Instead, you shall die. And Elijah departed. Now, he meets the messengers. He delivers the message from the Lord. They return then to Ahaziah with that message. And when the messengers return to Ahaziah, he asked them, Why have you returned? Verse 5, So soon. They answered, Well, a man met us and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and tell him, the Lord says, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baal-Zebub, the God of Ekron? For this you shall not leave the bed upon which you lie. Instead, you shall die. Now, hearing that word, the king asked his messengers, what was the man like who met you and said these things to you? And they replied, well, a very interesting fellow. He wore a hairy garment with a leather belt around his waist. Does that ring 
familiar to you? It should, because we meet a similarly clad character in the Gospel of Matthew. In the Gospel of Matthew, we meet John the Baptist. John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3 appears wearing, in verse 4, clothing made of camel hair. Camel hair, a hairy garment, they are synonymous, and had a leather belt around his waist. John the Baptist is clearly trying to image himself as a new Elijah. This would not be lost on anyone in the New Testament era because of this association with the great prophet of word and deed who's assumed into heaven in chapter 4 of 2 Kings next week in our lecture. And so again, his fame is well noted. So again, back to 1 Kings, I'm sorry, 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 7. What was the man like who met you and said these things to you? They replied, well, unique. He wore a hairy garment with a leather belt around his waist. And the king said, well, that was Elijah, the Tishbite. And so the king sent a captain with a company of 50 men to find Elijah. They found him. The prophet was seated on a hilltop. He said, that is the captain in charge of his men, man of God, the king commands you, come down. Elijah answered the captain. Well, if I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And the fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. The king sent another captain with this company of 50 men as well to find Elisha. He shouted up as well, man of God, the king says, come down immediately. And Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. And divine fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty men. The king then sent a third captain with his company of fifty men. And when the third captain had climbed the hill, before he spoke, he fell to his knees before Elijah, pleading with him, looking at the carnage all around and he said, Man of God, let my life and the lives of these fifty men, innocents, all your servants, count for something in your sight. Already fire has come down from heaven, consuming the first two captains with their companies of fifty men. But now let my life count for something in your sight, he pleads. And then the messenger said to Elijah, Go down with him. I'm sorry, then the messenger of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. You need not be afraid of him. So Elijah left and went down with him to the king. Now, the assumption is that uh, Elijah is playing fast and loose with his prophetic powers. I don't think he really needs to call down fire from heaven to consume the 50 who appear first or the 50 who appear second. We may, however, have a clue hidden in verse 15, a messenger of the Lord, an angel, speaking to Elijah, says, Go down with him. This one you will be safe to travel with. You need not be afraid of him, meaning you were rightfully afraid and suspicious of captains one and captains two and their company of 50 men under their command. They were, I would imagine, plotting your demise. They were going to take you out, not take you to the king. That's the way I can reconcile this action 
of Elijah, the angel, speaking to him. You don't have to worry about this fellow. And so Elijah left and went down with him to the king. He declared to the king, this is what the Lord says. Because you sent messengers to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, do you think there is no god in Israel to inquire of? You shall not leave the bed upon which you lie. Instead, you will die. And Ahaziah died according to the word the Lord spoke through Elijah. And since he had no son, Joram succeeded him as king. In the second year of Joram, the son of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. And the rest of the acts of Ahaziah, which he did, are recorded in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Now that brings me to about the 45-minute mark in this lecture, and that's all I really want to do on a weekly basis. I'll record another lecture for the Wednesday morning class on Tuesday so that it will be posted in time for our regular scheduled class time. And we'll continue this, as I said, throughout the month of April until, God willing, the churches reopen and our venues can be repopulated once again. But until then, I bid you adieu and never tire of reminding you of what a great student you are. Let others know that these lectures are available and give a listen. And let's stay connected in this time of securing in place. God bless and good day.